Hope is a dangerous thing. But as I think we're going to come to find, it's also maybe the most important thing. Guessing all of you are somewhat familiar with the movie Shawshank Redemption and the, the story of Andy Dufresne and his wrongful incrimination. And he's serving a life sentence, essentially, for a crime that he did not commit. But what we don't realize is that this reason this movie has gone down in one of the most famous movies of all time is I don't think it's because it's a jailbreak movie. I think it's because it's a story of hope. Everybody say hope. 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 And Andy, is, Andy Dufresne is, is holding on to this, this thing that a lot of the other, most of his other inmates have already let go of. He's holding on to this one thing that maybe matters most when you're in a situation like his or when you're in any situation, to be honest, and that's hope. He's holding on to hope that the truth will win out for hope for freedom, hope for a better future. Hope is a powerful thing. And we talk about hope a lot around here, not just because it's the name of our church, but I want you to talk about a deeper hope today, not so much our church, but a deeper kind of hope. We, we talk about hope because if you look uh, across the, the scope of human history, if you look across the scope of Scripture, there's three or four themes that pop up over and over and over again in the Bible, and one of them is hope, mainly faith, hope, and love. What makes hope such a powerful thing is it's not something that if you're feeling a little empty today, if your bucket's feeling a little, a little empty of, of hope, it's not something that you can go out to the store and buy if you need a little bit more of. It's not something that you can conjure up on your own, out of your own strength, out of your own ability. It's not something you can just go out and say, well, I'm going to try to be a little bit more hopeful today. Hope is such a powerful thing is that you can't create it yourself. It's got to come from something bigger, from an outside force in. Hope is something much bigger than us. Hope is what got you out of bed this morning, whether you realize it or not. You know, we can go for a, a while as humans without water. We can go for a while without food. But the human soul craves hope. It's what got you out of bed this morning. It's what, it's what gets you moving every single day and say, there's something to get up for. There's something to look forward to. In the face of the, the, the pain that I'm facing and the, the difficulties and the struggles, there's something bigger that's moving me forward. Hope is the belief that there is something better ahead. That the worst thing is never the last thing. That there is a reason to keep moving forward. That there is an answer and a solution to the deepest difficulties and pains that plague you, our nation, and our world. That's the power of hope. It's such a simple thing, and yet it's a profound thing as well. Hope is a theme all throughout Scripture, as I talked about. The Apostle Paul talks about it this way in Romans chapter 15. Let's read this together up on the screen, nice and loud. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's very clear that the invitation of Jesus Christ for every single one of us this morning, whether this is your first time here and you just wandered in this morning, you said, hey, I heard maybe there's a bus that's going to Hope, or I, I'm here with a friend or a family member. The invitation for you, whether this is your first time here or your hundredth time here, is to be filled up with hope. If you're feeling a little empty, if you're feeling a little dry, if you're feeling a little hopeless, if you're feeling a little depressed, hope is available not just for you to get filled up, but the Apostle Paul says the invitation of Jesus is to overflow with hope. Would you say that you're overflowing with hope today? Or are you scraping the bottom of the barrel? Are you getting by? Is, is it about halfway there? The thing is, we use the word hope for a lot of different things. What does hope mean to you? 
We use that word for a a lot of different things. Maybe you're hoping as a parent for the summer to wrap up. Uh, Maybe as a student, you're hoping that the summer would never end. Uh, it's, it's fair time. I don't know if there's any State Fair fans out there. Just show, quick show of hands. Anybody? State Fair fans upstairs? Okay, 12 of you. So the rest of you, there's this thing that happens in August. Every year, a bunch of people get together and have a whole hootenanny, have a big party down on the east side. I don't know if you've heard of it, but our State Fair is the fair. It's the best State Fair in our state. You should check it out besides the 12 of you that went. If you're planning on going, maybe you have some high hopes and you have hopes and dreams for all the things that you're going to see at the fair. You're hoping to get that favorite item on a stick to eat, your double bacon wrap pork chop slathered in buttered butter dipped in syrup on a stick treat, whatever your hope uh, is with that. I don't know about you. I'm just kind of a plain Jane kind of guy. I'm just a straight up simple funnel cake kind of guy. Anybody with me on just the funnel cake? Just simple? Okay, there's a few of us left in the world. Okay, so that's just kind of where I'm at. But the reality is, uh, I don't really hope for that. It's just that it would be nice if I had that. It seems pretty trivial compared to the things that I'm guessing that there are some of you here today that are hoping for. Some of you are hoping for a positive diagnosis for a loved one. Some of you are hoping to find a job in the near future so that you can make it through this month's rent. Some of you are hoping to finally beat, to finally overcome that addiction that's plagued you again and again and again. There are some of you here this morning that are hoping for a positive on a pregnancy test, and you've been praying about that for a long time. Hope is a powerful thing. It's not just a trivial thing, but often hope is something that we believe that only naive people have. Something that people have that, oh, they haven't lost their innocence yet. They haven't experienced the real world like I have. I gave up on that a long time ago. But if that was the case, if hope was something that when we're up, we're up, and when we're down, we're down, and it just sort of becomes the roller coaster of life, well, then after a week like we've experienced in our nation, then certainly there would be a lot of hopeless people walking around, a lot of fearful people walking around, and maybe that's you this morning. But as followers of Jesus, we know that it's deeper than that. We got, there's there's got to be something more to that. The author of Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews chapter 6. He says this, We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, speaking of Jesus Christ, firm and secure. What does an anchor do when you think about it? Does it just kind of flap around in the wind? No, even if everything else above the surface is chaos, what does an anchor do? It grounds you. When all around you is swirling in in this storm, when everything else isn't steady, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, not this positive outlook on life or it's just some blind optimism, glass half, you know, uh, half full sort of mentality. Hope in Jesus Christ is something different. It's the anchor to our soul that when everything else in our own personal lives and our nation and our world is chaos and swirling around us, We have something that other people don't have, and it is the hope of knowing Jesus Christ and knowing that he lives inside inside of you. And so I was was praying and thinking about today and thinking about our scripture reading that you heard, which we're going to get to in a little bit. That theme of hope pops up over and over again as well. But I also think today, this week, given the last few weeks that it's been in our world, in our nation, there's some things that we need to be reminded of, that I need to be reminded of, that I think God wants to remind us of. And so by no means is this an exhaustive list, but I just wanted to share a few things. I think what, what could be our response as a church 
to the violence, to the, hate, to the hatred, to the, to the shootings that have happened these last couple weeks. It's not fun. It's not cheery to talk about. But this is where the gospel gets really tangible, friends. This is where we don't just kind of stand up here and talk about a pie in the sky. God loves you and everything's going to be okay. So you should have a hope in Jesus Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where things get real. And what we read about in scripture gets very, very applicable. And it becomes very, very real. And so what would our response look like? And sadly, this response and these keys and these points look very similar to what I've shared before with you on one too many occasions over the last couple years as these tragedies happen again and again and again. But number one, when we're faced with tragedy, when we're scrolling through our news feed, if you still watch the news, if you can bear it, uh, <laughs> these are some things that I feel like God wants us to remember. Three key things. Number one, we mourn. Scripture calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. One of the tactics of our enemy is to desensitize us. And I think one of the worst things that could happen when we continue to face tragedy after tragedy and hatred and violence, violent act after violent act, these things that are sweeping through our nation, is to let our hearts grow hard and calloused, to stop caring to give up hope, to say, well, that's just the way things are now. Everything's falling apart. And just to say, well, there's nothing that we can do. The worst thing that could happen is that we grow numb to it. And so we want to continue to let our hearts break for the things that God's heart breaks for. The moment that we stop caring is the moment that we, lo that we lose. We want our hearts to break for the things that God's heart breaks for. Regardless of where we stand, we mourn. Secondly, we pray. Now, opposed to some of the popular opinions of the day, prayer is not some passive act. Prayer is not some last-ditch effort, and we say, well, thoughts and prayers, well, that hasn't gotten us anywhere, so let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we don't need to pray at all, right? James chapter 5, verse 16 says, prayer is powerful and effective. Everybody say powerful. powerful. Everybody say effective. And we're called to it. That's what we do. Especially when the God that we're praying to is the only one with the power to really change hearts and to change the course of our nation and our world. Amen? So we don't stop praying because prayer is action-filled. It's not some passive, last-ditch effort. When we've tried everything else, well, then maybe we'll pray about it and we'll come running to God. No, it's the first thing we do and it's the last thing we do. And we cover everything that we do in prayer because God is the one that's capable of changing hearts. And so we pray. We pray for the victims. We pray for their families. We pray for the shooters. We pray for those that we would love to hate. We pray and love for and love our enemies, not because it's easy and not because praying for somebody means you agree with them. Praying for somebody doesn't mean that you uh, are legitimizing and validating their behavior. Even if it's pure evil, we continue to pray for and love our enemies. And I know it's painful and I know it's difficult, but our Savior calls us to it. The same God that Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, came pursuing us. And if we choose to follow that Jesus that came pursuing us while we were enemies, we are called to love and pursue and pray for our enemies as well. Amen? So we mourn, we pray, and that last but definitely not least, we take action. Now, please don't mis misunderstand. This debate comes up every time there's something that pops up in our nation, one of these violent acts of hatred. Should we pray or should we take action? And as you read scripture, there is only one clear Christian response. It's both. Everybody say both. both. It has never been an either or. It is always both. Prayer is action. 
Getting on your knees before a holy God is action. It is the most action-filled thing that you can do. And yet, there are a variety of ways that we can take action, right? Prayer taking spiritual action as well as taking legal action, taking political action, taking social action. All of those are important parts and keys of shining our light in the darkness. And sometimes shining our light in the darkness means getting involved in issues of justice, getting involved in political action. And there are a lot of people in our Hope community that are very, very much involved in politics. Everywhere across the board. We've got the left wing, we've got the right wing, we've got everywhere in between. We've got the whole bird at Hope. And I think that we're better for it, okay? We're better for it. Because our primary allegiance is not to a political party, it's to Jesus Christ. And that's who we follow above and beyond anything else. But we get involved and we take action. Shining our lights always involves, as we learned about last week in Isaiah, always involves standing up for the rights of those that are poor and oppressed and vulnerable. That is very, very clear from cover to cover on the heart of God and is something that we as a church have been doing for the last 25 years. But also, when we're faced with these things in our nation and in our world, shining our lights for Jesus must also involve speaking truth and confronting lies when they're prevalent, especially when it's done in the name of Jesus, especially when it's done in the name of his bride, the church. And so just so there's absolutely no confusion, I don't want anybody coming to church these last few weeks going, you know, I wonder where hope's at with all this. I wonder what we should think as the church. We just kind of, you know, flap around like one of those, uh, one of those ships in the sea, or do we have an anchor? Is, is there truth? Is there something to stand on in the word of God? And just so there's absolutely no confusion, white supremacy, white nationalism, or any kind of racism or hatred of any kind toward any one of God's children, regardless of color or race or nationality, is absolutely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ and who we are called to be as a church. Amen? Amen. just want to make that clear. And just so we're clear as well, that is not a political statement. That is a statement straight from the heart of God that is repeated over and over in Scripture from cover to cover, the heart of a God who is passionately in love with every tribe and race and nation. Amen? Amen. And so because of that, we have to go to God for wisdom on these things. We don't lash out with the first thing that crosses through our heart and mind. We don't type the first thing that comes to us when we get heated. We follow Jesus rather than any political party or an agenda. You, as a follower of Jesus, have a much higher agenda. And do not let your faith get hijacked by one particular political party or another. You follow Jesus, and your highest allegiance is to him. Should we get actively involved in our nation, in our world, and in politics? Absolutely. And you do that with wisdom. And so we follow Jesus with wisdom, and we do not, we do not fight hate with hate. We do not lash out and become the very thing that we're lashing out against, but we do so with love. And so in the midst, a simple reminder of in the midst of all the the online and negativity and debates and everything like that, do not forget this, that the quickest way to change somebody's mind is to connect with their heart. Let that just sit in for a second. I have never seen anybody come to know Jesus Christ and put their faith in him because they lost an argument on Facebook. I'm just going to say it. Maybe you have, okay? I've never seen anybody go on a 15 different comment rant and say, oh, you got me. I am stricken with the love of Jesus Christ. I'll be at church on Sunday, okay? Maybe you've seen that, but I haven't. We don't change people's minds by arguing with them. We do it by connecting with our heart because that's what Jesus did. 
And that's why we love, and that's why we serve, and that's why we build relationships, even with those that we disagree with on the other side of the aisle, rather than endless debates. We take action because we have a God who is anything but passive. We take action because we are people of hope. And so I have no idea how we covered the state fair, Isaiah, and white supremacy in the first 10 minutes, but there you go. Can we open our Bibles now? Can we do that? Okay. All right. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7 if you've got your Bibles. We're going to continue on with the sermon series that we started. And believe it or not, the theme of our passage today is hope. We need it more than ever in our world. We need it more than ever in our nation. We need it more than ever as God's church. Isaiah chapter 7. If you're new to the Bible, we are so glad that you're here. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. So it's going to be about in the first third of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 7, written by the man with the same name. We kicked off this series. Uh, Isaiah is our book of the month for the book of August, if you're just getting up to speed as well. So Isaiah is written by the prophet Isaiah, and we learn that prophets often have have the difficult task of standing up in front of a group of people and saying some things that may not be popular, saying some things that may rub you the wrong way, confronting with the hard truth. But a lot of times, love is speaking the hard truth, right? And so we speak out on those things as just as God has always called the prophets to do. And so for, for, for years, God's people have been, been uh, running away, rebelling from him in idolatry and corruption and oppression of the vulnerable. And so Isaiah is called upon to speak the heart of God into this hopeless, dark situation filled with evil. So when we arrive on the scene in Isaiah chapter 7, God's people are now split into two kingdoms. For a quick history lesson, go ahead and go to that next slide. And as you look at this map, you can see there's kind of two different shaded areas. There's the, the pinkish-reddish area towards the top. That is the kingdom of Israel. And then there's kind of the greenish area towards the bottom. That is the kingdom of Judah. So God's people, right, used to be one people that were rescued from Egypt and came and settled here in the promised land. But now, because of all this turmoil that's take place, they've split into two kingdoms. And each kingdom has their own king. And so what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 7 is that Judah's current king is a very evil king. His, his name is King Ahaz. Everybody say Ahaz. If you're pregnant, if you're expecting, and you're looking for a great boy's name, that's available as well. Uh, Although he wasn't the greatest guy, so maybe don't do that. Um, But King Ahaz is the king of Judah down here to the south. And what he discovers is that King Pekah of Israel, the the nation uh, to the north, has teamed up with King Rezin of Syria, which is just to the north and the east up there where it says Aram. That's the nation of Syria. And together, they they have kind of bonded together their armies, and they're going to attack Judah's capital city of Jerusalem, which is just at the northern point of the green-shaded area there, so the holy city of Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, okay? And it says this, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind, okay? I love the poetic language there by Isaiah, right? He could have just said, they were scared, But he said they were shaken as trees are shaken by the wind. If you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find that they're feeling helpless, maybe even hopeless. So think about this for a second. You have an evil king that is getting ready to be decimated by his enemies. If you're God, you're like, great, that's the end of it, right? They're just going to kill off each other and they're going to take care of themselves. So you think that God wouldn't care. Unless you know the rest of the story that this is God's people. Unless long before God had made a promise that the Messiah, that the rescuer, that hope would come from the line of what? Judah. Out of the line of Judah, a savior will 
come. So God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to encourage his people, and he tells Isaiah to say this to King Ahaz. Look at verse 4. Say to him, be careful. Keep calm and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Could there be any more relevant word of encouragement for where we're at in our nation today? (laughs) Right there. I mean, especially for us as Christians, how relevant that is. Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart. But the end of the sentence is the best. Here's the thing. If you don't read the Bible once in a while and just laugh out loud, you're not reading the Bible correctly, okay? Listen to this. Do not lose heart. This is God speaking. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Oh, wait, don't look now, but God just called two of the most powerful men in the entire world at the time stubs of firewood, okay? Don't tweet this out. Don't put it on the record, but I'm pretty sure God is bringing out some smack talk here in Isaiah chapter 7, okay? It shows bigger picture how big, how powerful God is, and how little he is scared of the powers and leaders of this world. God says, it's not going to happen. Don't worry. Secondly, don't miss what God does here. Right in the middle of this potential disaster, right in the middle of Judah's rebellion, right in the middle of the face of an evil king, God shows up and says, nothing is going to stand in the way of my plan. Maybe we need to be reminded of that today. Nothing is going to stand in the way of God doing what God wants to do. And so he tells Isaiah to say to Ahaz, you might get taken over. You might die. Your people might be decimated, but it won't last forever. Why? Because hope is coming. Look at verse 14. Right in the middle of this evil and darkness and hatred, verse 14, God tells Isaiah to say this. Let's read it together nice and loud up on the screen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Don't look now, folks, but it's Christmas in August. Turn to your neighbor and say, Merry Christmas, neighbor. Tell him that right now. Merry Christmas. You weren't expecting that, were you? Right in the middle of the doom and gloom of the prophets? It's Christmas, or at least it's Advent, right? Some of you have heard that, and you're like, wait a minute, we read that in December, right? This is how cool God is. Right in the middle of a hopeless situation, he speaks hope. And essentially, in other words, what God is saying to his people, live for the line, not the dot. Live for the line, not the dot. Their situation, that dot on the timeline of human history, on the course of biblical history at the time, Their situation, your situation, whatever you're in the middle of, whatever you're facing today, is not the end of the story. It's not going to end there. The worst thing is never the last thing. So live for the line. Live for the bigger story that God is telling, the line that has been going on long before you ever got here and the line that will continue to go on long after. Your dot, your current circumstances are never the end. There is a hope, and it is found, get this, in future generations, in generations to come. So back to our own reality for a moment in our world. If you've been paying attention to the the media circus and the discussions around violence in our nation, much of it, a lot of it, is centered around the current state of young people, right? Kids these days. And a lot of it is a very hopeless rhetoric, is a very hopeless talk. Kids these days are too far gone. They're the issue, they're the problem, 
Kids have gone too far away. They're too far astray for there to be hope. And certainly, don't get me wrong, there are very, very important issues and wounds in our families and in our culture that need to be addressed and talked about. But I also believe that God is telling a bigger story, a different story, and it's one of hope. And we get to see it all the time around here. I have great hope, just as Isaiah did in future generations, because of what God is doing in the future generations here in this church and all across our campuses at Hope. And it's not just at Hope. God is doing something in this next generation. He's stirring something in their hearts that they want more. And they want more hope and they want more Jesus. So we're going to just pause in our stories. We're talking about hope for the future as we're talking about hope in future generations and I want to invite up Ryan Tunick, our student ministry leader, to share a little bit about what God's doing in the next generation. So would you welcome up Ryan with me? I knew it was going to be a little bit of doom and gloom today, so I wanted to cheer you up and bring the most energetic person I know. So I was going to bring Ryan up uh, for you as well. But we thought when we're talking about hope and we're talking about future generations, we're also on the cusp of a new school year. We're also on the cusp of a new year of programming for our student ministry. And because a lot of it takes place on Wednesday nights, a lot of you may not know, hey, what's going on with students here at Hope? You know, these kids that are so out of line these days that are the problem, what is actually a different story that God is telling? And so, Ryan, I just wanted to ask a few questions this yeah. morning. And the first one is simply this. Even though all the, the, the myths and assumptions that are out there about kids these days What's the different story that you see God telling here at Hope and in, in what you get to do working with our junior high and senior high students? What has God done this last year? Oh, man, it's been so awesome. So the thing that you might think, or at least our world, world tries to say about students is that they really don't care about much at all um, mm -hmm. and that they're just kind of lost and they're kind of mindless and doing nothing. But um, something that I've continued to see here at Hope Des Moines with Power Life and Ignition, not only have we had... Uh, five times worth the growth of high school students coming in over this past year. Five times God. what we had last year. Like, that, <laughs> that is insane. High schoolers want to know more. High schoolers are interested in the world around them, and they care. And not only them coming in on Wednesday nights, you've been seeing them consistently every single first weekend of the month serving right here during our services because they want to connect with you. They want to serve you. They want to show you that they care about impacting this world and the families and communities around them. And they have been doing that for a whole entire year, never backing down, never t being like, well, you know, it's summer, so let's take, take a, break, a break, right? Yeah, let's take a break yeah. from our faith. No, yeah. they've shown up even more this summer. And so I am so proud of our students. It's yeah been a phenomenal ride. Yeah, it's been awesome. Ryan and his team have done, have done a fantastic job, and it's not that it's easy. I think a lot of times, maybe if you're like me, uh, and you're not actively involved uh, in, in working with students as Ryan is, a lot of us have assumptions about what youth ministry is like, because our youth group going up, growing up, if you grew up in the church, and you're thinking, oh, well, it's just easy, you know, pie in the sky. You just show up, and these kids come. They don't have a care in the world. Everything's great in their life. You show up, you play some ping pong upstairs, you have some pizza, you tell them about Jesus, and they go home to these perfect family situations and school situations where everything's fine. I'm guessing that's not the case. So, not the case. Ryan, share with us just a glimpse, just a glimpse 
into the life, into the world of students that are walking in these doors every week? What, what is the world that they're living in and, and what sort of things are they facing that maybe we don't realize? Absolutely. So our students are living in the same world you are. It's terrifying out there. Um, and them being younger, they may not have as much experience as you do in recognizing what's going on around them. And so these are all a lot of experiences that they're trying to understand and cope with. And there's a lot of experiences that they are experiencing personally. That's not just on the news. It's in their home. It's at their school. It's in their activities. And so what they're bringing in every single week is not them being like, oh, everything's totally fine. No, things are going on. And one of those stories that I remember personally from this past year, we, we bring up a whole range of topics um, every single Wednesday night centered around what Christ has for them. And one of those topics is mental health. Um, our students are dealing with mental health on a, a level I have not seen uh, ever, um, but it's happening. And so we were talking about that, and one student, it was his first night. <laughs> so I was like, oh, boy, buckle up. Welcome yeah. to the show. <laughs> um, it was uh, crazy to just be like, hey, welcome to Ignition. Let's talk about your mental health. Yeah. Um, so we went through that, and at the end, uh, we have this time where we go into small groups and talk about things. And he pulled me aside, and he's like, hey, I... I need to talk to you, like, one-on-one. And this, this is, like, one of those cool kids who's, like, you know, I'm not really going to show you much emotion or expression because I'm trying to figure you out, and I'm kind of over here by myself, and I'm not, like, trying to connect too much. Yeah. He personally, intentionally took me aside. We sit down in the room, and probably maybe a minute later, he is just bawling, like, full-on tears. Not like that single tear you get kids when, like, you know, you lose Fortnite and you're like, I lost again today. No, this was straight-up pain from his heart and in his soul and anguish over the things he's gone through. This is a, like, 16, 17-year-old student who is finally, for the first time, feeling the safety and the welcoming of expressing his full emotions. And we were able to talk through that. And it wasn't some special thing I said that was like, oh, Ryan's so good. Or like, oh, wow, that talk was so amazing. This is why. God was moving in his heart. And he felt here that he had the safety to do that. And I was just like, man. And something, a part of the story that kind of breaks my heart, too, is not only what he was going through. But the reason why we're kind of talking up here today, too, is I was talking with him. And there were five other... Five other guys that I didn't even get a chance to talk to because we just didn't have enough people there to care for our students well. And it, it bums me out because <laughs> that's one. And there's so many more that I didn't even get a chance to talk to that night. Yep. And that's kind of why we're talking today is because our students need us. Yep. They need us so bad. Yep. And that's... Part of why we wanted to talk about this today, because we want to talk about the why behind the what, right? On all of your chairs today, there is an invitation to be a part of the student ministry team, to serve in that way, our children's ministry team, our nursery. We love kids and students all across the board. But way more than an ask for volunteers, what Ryan is talking about is saying there is a real why behind the what. (laughs) The what is student ministry. The why is that there is a 16, 17-year-old boy that discovered real hope 
and the love of Jesus Christ, thank God, in a local church, which is the way that it should be. Amen? Amen. So we can give God praise for that. That's the why behind the what. So this is not a volunteer plug, okay? This is what it means for us to be family. So Ryan, I just wanted you to speak to that because we've got that out on the chairs today because we're heading into a new school year. It is not about the numbers like you talked about. It's about each of those individual hearts. But the reality is if we're going to love and care for our kids and our students well, it takes more than one or two people because they deserve our very best. And so this is a call to action. It's a call to love. It's a call to be a part of the solution. It's a call to be intentional with that. But I think if we're honest... A lot of us are maybe some people are sitting out there today going, I don't know the first thing about talking to a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kid. Like, what if they ask things I don't know? Am I equipped? Can I do this? I don't want to sign up because I have all these fears uh, and assumptions about yeah. it. So debunk a few of those myths for us. Let's do if it. If you would. Let's yeah. debunk some of these yeah. myths. Yeah. Maybe you think like, oh, if I'm going to be in student ministry with junior high or high schoolers, I've got to be like this really like 23, 24 year old trendy person who's got a wardrobe that's filled yeah. with like maybe some Yeezy shoes and yeah. some Gucci and Prada and stuff And if like you that. are, we'll take hey. you as well. That's and, great. And please we'll hear me. Yeah, well. yeah, if you do that, hey, yeah. good for you. If you have the, cool. gift, the gift of hip. <laughs> Get the yeah. gift of hip. I love yeah. it. Um, so yeah. if you think that's what you got to be, a theological guru who knows every single uh, theological question or anything that they bring up, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I'm a prime example of like, you know, like not like being super like into the trends and stuff like that and being super amazing with every answer ever. But they still keep coming back. Why? Because they, they remember more that you were there for them on a weekly consistent basis in their life and giving some, a little bit of your time in your week than some really, really cool quote that you were thinking about all week. So you're like, oh, I got to get this quote in because they're going to be so impressed. No, it is not so much the words, but it is the actions and how you are present with our students is what they're going to remember. I remember the moments that impacted me the most in my life was not something that someone said, There are those, and don't mishear me, what you say is important, but how you interact with them and how you engage and how you're present in their continual day after day, that is what matters. So you showing up for an hour and a half to two hours on a Wednesday night can change a student's life forever. Because these are the years that they are forming opinions and decisions and actions and responses to the world around them. And I think it's of the most importance that the first place they are hearing the way in which we should respond and interact and engage with the world around us is the local church, is what God is saying, what he is speaking into their soul, not somewhere else. We shouldn't be the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth response. We should be the first. We should be the ones leading them and engaging with them in a way that they need. Absolutely. And so as you're praying and thinking, and and maybe some of you are feeling that nudge today, like, I have never worked with students before, or maybe you did long ago in a previous church or a previous life or something like that, and you're just kind of on the fence about getting involved. Some of you need to hear this, like, authentic beats cool any day. 100%. (laughs) Authentic beats hip any day. And that is a giant lie that is out there that you have to be a certain type of person to work with students. You have to be a person that loves and a person that listens. 
100%. And that's way more important than anything else. Yes. And so I'm so pumped and I'm so excited about what God is doing with our kids these days, with our students here at Hope. And I'm so thankful that Ryan is on the front lines and has a great team. And we just want to invite you and give you the invitation to be a part of what God is doing in student lives here at Hope. So can we give Ryan a round of applause for all that he's doing? Thank you, brother. And so as I said, on your chair today, I just invite you to pick up that flyer. And just as we wrap things up today, I want to invite you to consider that, not only with our students, but with our children as well. Like I said, this isn't a volunteer plug so much as a lot of you are new to church. And I just want to teach on something really briefly. When you're a part of a church, you are a part of a family. And when you're a part of a family, if there is a need, you do everything that you can to meet that need. And you ask God, how are you calling me to be faithful and to respond and be, be a part of this family? Because even if your kids are grown and even if you have no interest in student ministry, these aren't the church's kids or somebody else's kids. They're our kids. They're our students. And so we're called to respond together and collectively as a family. Kids are not a, students are not a distraction from the main thing. They are the main thing. And I want you to hear this loud and clear that every child whether they're in our nursery right now, whether they're being served in Hope Kids right now, whether they hang out with Ryan and his team on Wednesday nights and all the different things that they do. Every child needs someone who sees them not as a distraction, but as a holy appointment. And for some of you, maybe you're getting that nudge today as a holy appointment, as, as current, not just seeing them for who they are in their current state, but as a story that's still being written. And that's why I have this hope, even in the grim reality of the story we're talking about in Isaiah chapter 7. Why is that? Because God is not done yet. Life is not simply a dot. Life is a line that has been going on since the beginning of time and as a line that will continue as well. No, we're not going to do uh, the limbo up here today. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God said this. Let's read it together on the screen. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What is God doing? God is saying to Israel, to Judah, as messed up, as imperfect as they are and as we are, a Messiah will come. Out of this line, way back here, even though you don't understand it at the time, wherever you're at in your story, hope is going to come, a Messiah is going to come, and because of that, the story doesn't end. God is writing a much different story. God says, focus on the promise, don't focus on your current circumstances. Don't focus on the dot that is a child's life or that is a student's life. Focus on what God is doing and the story that God wants to write through their life. Live for the line, not the dot. Live for the line, not the dot. And yet we know that the story of the Old Testament is there's a lot of scissors. <laughs> there's a lot of breakups. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of hatred, and over and over again in the Bible and God's story, there's all these moments where it seems even like Satan himself, or it seems like the rebellion of God's people. Whatever it is, evil, hatred, darkness comes along and so often cuts that line and messes up God's plan. And we think, oh, what are we going to do now? Just like the current state of our nation and our world. Is there hope? Is there a future? Is that line going to continue? There's even that 400-year silence between the Old and the New Testaments where how many of God's people were saying, where is God? And some of you, that's exactly where you're at today. 
John, you can talk about hope all you want, but my story is stuck. Because in a very practical sense, everything was going along really well for you at one point, and then all of a sudden, divorce. And you're like, that's it. The story's done. How, how, can, how can God do anything now, right? My, my story's done, and then yet somehow, life continues. And there's still a line, and everything's going along well, and you think things are going really well, and you've, you've got the job that you want, and you're financially sustainable, and then all of a sudden, you get laid off. Well, now I don't know how I'm going to, I can't provide for my family. I don't know how I'm going to go on. The story must be done. There's no hope. There's no future. Everything's going along well. And then when you least expect it, tragedy hits. Someone you love dies. I don't, they were my rock. I lost my mom. I lost my dad. I lost a loved one. How, how can I continue on? And so I'm going to try to cope, and I'm going to try to meet that pain. And you never thought you would do this, but you get wrapped up in this, this vicious cycle of addiction, and you're going along, and all of a sudden there are these habits and these addictions that you just can't break, and all of a sudden it ends up breaking you. Now I've really royally screwed up. And for some of you, it's not so much what somebody else did to your story. You're living in the guilt and the, the shame of, of what you did to your own story, and now it's just lying in shambles up here on the floor in bits and pieces. How can, how can God put this back together? It seems like my story is over. The question in Isaiah 7 that Ahaz is asking, the question that a lot of you are maybe asking today, where is God in the midst of this story? Has God given up on our nation? Has God given up on our world? Has God given up on me because my story is laying in shambles on the floor? Maybe that would be the case if there was only a lower story. But God is writing an upper story. Everybody say lower. lower. Everybody say upper. upper. With every story in the Bible and with every day of your life, there are two lines. There are two stories that are being written. One is a lower story, and, and maybe from your perspective, it's fallen apart. There is no hope for a future. There is no promise. Your King Ahaz, you're sitting there and your heart is being shaken like the wind blowing through a forest. And you're hopeless and you're depressed and things are decimated and you don't know how you're going to go on. But God is telling a story and what King Ahaz forgot and what we often forget is that we are dealing with an all-powerful, all-sufficient God who has been writing an upper story, a different story since the beginning of time. And when you think that your lower story was being shredded to pieces and cut apart and there is no hope in every one of those moments when you thought your story was over, God says, don't forget about the upper story. Don't forget about the line that has been going on from the beginning of time and will continue to eternity. So don't get so hung up on your little dot, your little tiny little piece of the story. It is not the end. It is not the end of your story. There is an upper story, and God keeps his promises no matter what your lower story looks like. And that's why Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, to all of us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you may have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what hope means. This is what real hope means. Things are really, really bad right now. In fact, maybe they've never been worse. In our nation, in our world, or in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your financial situation, things have been never worse in your dot along the story. But the story's not 
over. God is telling a story that says death is not the end, white supremacy is not the end, hatred is not the end, evil is not the end, the worst thing is never the last thing. And this is not positive thinking, this is not blind optimism, this is a living hope that we have because of the cross and the empty grave through Jesus Christ. The worst thing for you, for us, is never the last thing. Book of 1 Peter chapter 3 puts it this way. Let's read it together up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does a living hope mean? It's not that the answer to the gospel and what plagues our nation is that someday things are going to get better. A living hope means that if Jesus Christ is living in your heart, that Jesus Christ is not just the light at the end of the tunnel, he's the light in the middle of the tunnel for whatever you're going through and whatever we're going through as a nation. It is a living hope. It is a real hope for today. Live for the line, not the dot. And that's what Andy Dufresne discovered in Shawshank Redemption. And after he escapes, he reminds his friend Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And as you take a look at this final scene in the movie, Watch as Red is invited in to Andy's great hope, his dream of owning his own boat and sailing in the ocean. Oh, hope is a dangerous thing, but it is the most important thing. Never give up hope. Let's take a look. That's kind of a glimpse of heaven, isn't it? Reuniting with the ones that you love. Andy's great desire, his great hope, was to own a sailboat and to fish in the ocean. I don't know what you're hoping for today, what the deepest hopes and longings of your heart are, whether they've been met or not. But I was just praying about this morning, I think maybe there's somebody, maybe a few people here this morning that just need to hear this. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And you're going to make it not because you're so great or on your own strength. You're going, to be make, you're going to make it because there's hope. And hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And you can have it when you live for the line and not just the dot. Put your hope in Jesus Christ today. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. And when you do, everything changes. When you do, it becomes contagious for those around you. Try to look below the surface and everything that's happening in our nation, and I believe one of the things that Christians are best known for in our nation these days is fear. We are known as people that are freaking out. That's what we're best known for. And it shouldn't be that way. 365 times, one for every day of the year, ironically, the Bible says, do not be afraid. And there is a very distinct difference between feeling afraid and being afraid. Feeling afraid is something that you and I feel all the time, and we should, because we're broken, and we live on this side of heaven. Being afraid is a matter of what has its grip on you, what controls your life and your mind and your heart from day to day. We can feel afraid. But Jesus tells you today, do not be afraid. 
something that we can offer to the world that nobody else has is not fear, is not hate, it's hope. And it's a living hope in Jesus Christ. And you can experience that today, and it is contagious. Hope is contagious. Love is contagious. Compassion is contagious. Being people that listen more than we speak is contagious. Taking action for things that matter is contagious. Sharing hundreds, if not thousands, of school supplies with the Des Moines public school system is contagious. Building homes and transforming a neighborhood in the Riverbend neighborhood for those that can't afford it is contagious. Pouring your life and investing in the lives of our teenagers and our students is contagious. Hope is contagious. Let's let our lives, let's let our hope, the hope of Jesus Christ, be what the world sees instead of fear. Hope is contagious, and we want to invite you to be a part of that here at Lutheran Church of Hope. Amen? Let's not just talk about it. Let's stand and let's sing of our living hope.